Well, if you've been with us these last few weeks, you know we've been showing these videos, uh, and, and these are folks from all over Christ community. Um, and basically, we've been asking them, you know, share about how you think your vocation, where you are in life, uh, uh, contributes to neighborly love. And uh, Aaron's here reminded me uh, that as a parent, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, uh, one of those neighbors are your own children. And so love them well. I just love that video. Well, I'm the first that gets to say it, but what a week, right, guys? I mean, yeah. right? I was not a big baseball fan until I came to Kansas City, which, yes, means bandwagon fan. But um, <laughs> that's what it means. Uh, I was telling someone uh, that I first became a Royals fan, and, and, and they made me baseball fans uh, because they, the way they play the game is just so fun to watch. Well, my, and my hunch is that many of you on Tuesday blew off work and went to the parade. Is that true? Did a lot of people do that? Yeah. Well, I'm a better person than you are, so I stayed at work. <laughs> And I I worked on this sermon for you, so you're welcome. Um, (laughs) But I did catch uh, parts of it online, which was fun. uh, And it reminded me uh, of the power of sports. And you just think about it. uh, There there isn't much that can unite a city like Kansas City, uh, like a World Series championship. And just seeing all of these different people in the streets. I mean, what was 800,000 people together, not as strangers, but as neighbors, with this common cause. And it's actually quite beautiful when you, when you think about it that way. Uh, but then it hit me soon after the parade was over because the noise stops and the players leave and the exodus back to our suburbs and our neighborhoods and our segmented lives, it, it's, it begins again. And, and for all the beauty that I think we really did see on Tuesday, uh, by Wednesday, it's like it didn't happen. Not to be a total Debbie Downer, but this felt particularly pronounced to me in Kansas City, which is increasingly known as one of the most divided cities in the United States. And it's a city not unlike uh, many throughout the country with incredible disparities. And it's a city with people uh, who are one bad break away from real desperation. And it's a city full of people uh, who are already there. The Bible talks a lot about those kinds of people, uh, the vulnerable And there is a phrase, actually, that theologians used to describe uh, this in in the Bible. They they call it the quartet of the vulnerable. And uh, it's it's these these four people you always see together in the Bible. The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. Okay, these four are mentioned in the Old Testament over and over again. I'll give you an example. Zechariah. This is what the Lord God Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the immigrant or the poor. And in biblical terms, okay, in a very real way, the economic health of a society, of a country, of a city, of any community cannot be measured simply by looking at GDP. It cannot be measured simply by looking at a jobs report. It is measured primarily by this, are the vulnerable flourishing in your community or not? Are those at greatest risk being cared for? Are there, are there real and equitable opportunities for those who are typically oppressed and forgotten by your society? Are the well-off and the fortunate sacrificing their time and talent and treasure for the sake of the vulnerable? Are God's people in that city doing justice like Zechariah says or not? And if the answer is no, then that city will reap the whirlwind sooner or later. 
Okay, this is what the book of Amos is all about. It's the book we're going to look at today, Amos. Amos was a prophet at a time in Israel of great economic prosperity. Okay, a wealth unlike anything that had come before. Incredible amount of money. The indicators are all pointing up, except for the most vulnerable. Justice was not being done, and God's judgment on his own people for this gross failure is the main point of the, of the whole book. So we've been in a series, as you know, on neighborly love, and we've been asking, okay, how does our work and our contribution, whether whoever you are, as a student, as an employee, as a boss, CEO, parent, retiree, how can we begin to see and use our contribution to love our neighbors as ourselves? That's really what we've been talking about. We've seen God's design for this. We're created for work and contribution. We're created for collaboration. We're created for economic life. That's a good thing. And to steward our economics wisely is what Reed talked about last week. But we cannot have a series on neighborly love. We cannot have a Christian conversation on neighborly love without talking about justice and talking about the vulnerable. We just can't. So that's part of what we wanted to do this morning. How do we even begin as the people of God to work for God's justice in our communities and in our city and in our world? So turn to the book of Amos. If you haven't yet, turn to Amos. It can be tricky to find. Use your table of contents. That's fine. Uh, Turn there to chapter five. And there are just four things out of Amos I want us to focus on this morning, okay? Four things. If we're to truly stand with the vulnerable, as God has called us to do, what do we need to do? Okay, and the first thing we need to do is to truly see and understand what it means to be vulnerable. To see the vulnerable. We often think we know what it means to be vulnerable. We have a category for that, but we need to really sit in it this morning and consider it. We need to see what it is like to be a vulnerable person. And Amos really kind of gives two examples of what it looks like to be a vulnerable person uh, in his day. And these are just, just as true today as they were in his day in general. So, so the first thing Amos shows is that the truly vulnerable, vulnerable are, more often than not, victims of political corruption and indifference. So you read verse 10 of, of chapter 5. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Now when Amos talks about the gate here, what, what does that mean? Well, in the ancient, in ancient world, uh, the city gates were where justice was distributed. It's where the elders of the, t- of the city, it's where the judges of the city uh, heard cases, distributed justice, right? Giving verdicts. This is the ancient federal court system was the city gate. And Amos is saying, even at the gate in Israel, even at the political and legal heart of the city, the place designed specifically to defend the poor, there is corruption. Judges are receiving bribes to disenfranchise the poor, to dismiss their cases against the rich, to side with the powerful at the expense of the weak. And again, the health of a legal and political system is not defined by how well it serves the well-to-do, but how well it serves the down and out. Those who don't have the resources to receive justice even when they are in the right. And in general, to be vulnerable is to have no advocates no one speaking for you, no one thinking about you, no one considering your life, okay? Think about it. Widows don't have a husband in a patriarchal society, vulnerable. Orphans don't have parents in a traditional society, vulnerable. Immigrants don't have a people in a tribal society, vulnerable. No advocates. The vulnerable are often victims of political and legal corruption, which leads to the second thing, and I think we get the first one. 
But this, the second one is the one I don't think we've thought a lot about, okay? The second, Amos says, being vulnerable more often than not leads to systemic economic oppression and exclusion. So here's what that looked like in Amos's day. If you look at chapter 2, verse 6, I'll read it for you. Amos says, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Okay, this is a, this is a highly debated verse, chapter 2. But as best we can tell, here's what Amos is alluding to. Okay, silver here is a synonym for a large debt. And in the ancient world, if you defaulted on a loan, there was no bankruptcy law for you to lean on. It didn't just hurt your credit score. You went into slavery to work off the debt. That's what, I, that's, what, that's what he means by they sell the righteous. It means people were being forced into servitude in droves in, in Amos' day. So as best we can tell, what's happening here is the wealthy had so much buying power and so much control over prices in the time of Amos that they drove up prices, even for basic necessities, like a pair of sandals is what Amos uses here, or food or, or basic supplies. And the poor were going into tremendous debt just for basic just to live, just to survive. So simply to survive, you often had to put yourself and your family into slavery while the interest on your debt piled higher and higher and higher. And the chances of you or your family ever being free were lower and lower and lower. Systemic, economic oppression. And part of what Amos is doing here, in his, he's a prophet, part of what he's doing here is he is screaming at God's people to listen to him. And he says, look at this. Just look at it. Don't rationalize it. Don't, don't excuse it. Don't ignore it. Just look at it. So we need to do the same thing. What does this look like in Kansas City? And this can get partisan really quickly. I, I really don't want to do that. It's not my goal here. So I want to focus on two things, okay? Just two things that pretty much any economist will acknowledge has had an incredible effect on the vulnerable in Kansas City, okay? The first is education. We've talked a lot about that. We bring it up a lot. It's a huge need in our city. We all know that. There are thousands of students, age five and up, that are literally, statistically, on a trajectory to nothing, to nowhere. Through no fault of their own, because of where they were born, they will, most of them, many of them, will not learn to read or write by the time they graduate, even if they graduate at all from high school. Many of them will have absolutely no marketable skills or opportunity in a job market. None. Okay, how do you think that affects their chances of mobility? Okay, where are those lives headed? Does everyone here believe that public education is, is a fundamental necessity to a thriving community? My guess is the answer is yes. Have we been failing to provide this basic service to an entire group of people who are mostly ethnic minorities for generations? Yes. Second, home ownership. When Kansas City began to suburbanize after World War II and our veterans returned home to, ready to buy homes and, and live uh, lived the American dream. The Federal Housing Authority was there. The FHA, you probably heard of that. Federal Housing Authority was there to hand out loans to make that possible, to buy a home. Unfortunately, the FHA had already bought into a very influential idea from a very influential city planner. And the idea was this, okay, this is straight out of the FHA's underwriting manual at the time. If a neighborhood is to retain stability, it is necessary 
that property shall continue to be occupied by the same racial and social classes. If a change in social or racial occupancy generally leads to instability and a reduction in value. In other words, let me translate that for you. In the eyes of the government at the time, to have a person of color living in your neighborhood immediately downgraded the market value of that neighborhood and your home. So the realtors and the developers and the businesses, they went to the stable communities, okay, Caucasian, at the expense of others. And this idea shaped the entire country. The developer who perfected it, he didn't invent it, but who perfected it, J.C. Nichols. The city where he perfected it, before he was personally asked by FDR to come consult with him on the formation of the FHA. Kansas City. So you want to know why you can draw a line down Troost Avenue and one race lives on this side and one race lives on the other side. This is it. This is it. So do you know how important access to a good home and private property is to economic flourishing for a family? So think about how important it was uh, for your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, for the long-term economic flourishing of your family and your community to build equity through home ownership. How important was that? Where would you be if they had been systemically denied access to loans to buy a home in a good neighborhood with a good school? Okay, what would our lives look like right now? Pretty vulnerable is my guess. This isn't just about people not working hard enough to better their lives. This isn't just about the breakdown of the family. I know that those are important things. This is economic oppression. This is denying access to opportunities that most of us in this, in this room would take for granted, myself included. If Amos were here today, what would he say? What would he say to that? I cannot imagine him saying anything but woe to you. And I know, I know this is heavy stuff. It was hard to think about this week. But we have got to see it. We've got to see what it is like to be vulnerable in Kansas City. God's word in Amos is forcing us there. So can you look at it and just call it what it is? Injustice, oppression, exclusion. Because if we can look at it, then we can do what Amos tells us to do next. Okay? When we see the vulnerable, we can grieve with the vulnerable. That's his next. We can grieve with the vulnerable. This next text in Amos, actually, it hits me harder than the first one. Here's Amos' his, his summary indictment of the whole nation of Israel. In chapter 6, verse 4, he says, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and lounge on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, improvise on instruments of music, who drink wine from bowls and anoint themselves in the finest of oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Now here Amos, he's shifting his attention from those who've directly oppressed the vulnerable, and he turns basically to anyone who has benefited from their present reality. Okay, So basically that's most of us in the room. And he doesn't say, woe to you for having an easier life. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, woe to you for having a good job or a good home. He's, that's not the point. He says, woe to you if you claim to be God's people and your heart is not broken over what is happening around you. 
Woe to you if you do not grieve over what grieves God. Ouch. Now, many of us here, we're doing fairly well. We aren't the most vulnerable people in our communities, most of us here. I'm not saying life is easy. It's, it's not. But most of us here are not the most vulnerable people. That's fine. Having a nice home and a good job and a retirement fund, those are good things. Seriously, it's good. What Amos is, ta- is, is asking us here to do, he's saying, are you grieved over the ruin of Joseph? Or are you so insulated? Are you so distracted that we don't have time to grieve? I'm not asking us to fix this right now. I'm asking us to grieve. Now, most of us, I'm guessing, our knee-jerk reaction to hearing something like this is, okay, what do we got to do to fix it? What are the steps? What do I do? How do I contribute? I get it, and we'll get there, I promise, but that's not the first step. The first step is to grieve. And I think grieving kind of has three aspects to it, okay? The first is grieving means repenting. It means identifying the areas of our lives where we've benefited from an uneven playing field, even without knowing it, and asking for forgiveness. It also means taking a good hard look inside, and this gets me, and asking the question, do I really care about this stuff? Or do I walk away and immediately distract myself with something else? Does it hit my heart the way Amos is saying that it should? And if, like me, the answer is often no, I don't care enough, then repent and ask for forgiveness. And second, lament. Grieving means lamenting. Okay, what does lamenting mean? Acknowledge out loud to God that there is a brokenness and an evil here that will never be fully addressed until Jesus comes back. That doesn't mean we don't strive for justice. It doesn't mean we live without hope. But true lament knows that our ultimate hope is not possible in this world. It's not. And true lament knows, and this may be even more important, true lament knows that my ingenuity My education, my ideas, my work, my networks and resources, and whatever else I think I bring to the table, as important as those things are, is not ultimately what the world needs. And it's not what the vulnerable ultimately need. We all together need the redemption of Christ and his perfect justice in his kingdom. And we just aren't going to get those fully right now. We're not. So lament. And while we do those two things, I think we can do a third. Um, Grieving means listening. Listen. If you've ever been in a room with someone who's just just suffered a a devastating loss, you, you know this. You know you need to be quiet and listen. You don't invalidate their experience. You don't say, hey, they're with Jesus now, so it's okay. You don't say that. You don't argue with them. You don't qualify what they're saying. You just listen. Because you know that you are entering a sacred space. You are entering a space that you are privileged to have access to. And a space that you can never fully understand what this other person's going through. Okay, the same is true for people who are vulnerable. We need to listen. Is there anyone in your life right now who's vulnerable? Do you listen to them? Do they feel safe enough to share and be honest with you? Or do you find yourself discounting their experience, arguing with them, qualifying what they say? Can we just listen for a while? 
I want to lead us just in a, in a short time of silence because I understand that I'm, I'm talking to you about talking less. I get that. So I want to lead us in a time of silence. Repent, lament, and listen. Bow your heads with me in a time of silence. God, we don't care enough. And many of us don't understand and we don't want to understand. Forgive us. Help us to listen to those whom you've put around us to remind us what it is to be vulnerable and to remind us that we live in a terribly broken and unjust world and that it ought not be this way. And come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. You see, it's only after repenting and lamenting and listening that we can even begin to think about helping. <laughs> Seriously. I know we have a lot of doers out here, which is great. I love it. But there is a way to try to help and only hurt. So what are the next steps we can take? How do we learn to stand with the vulnerable? Okay, this is our third point. And I've got just three thoughts on this from Amos. Three, three ways to stand with the vulnerable. And the first is to grow in our character as the people of God. I know that's straightforward. Grow in our character as the people of God. God, or I'm sorry, Amos puts it this way in verse 15. He says, hate evil and love good and then establish justice in the gate. You see, Amos knows and God teaches that only people of character who hate evil and love good will establish justice in the gate. Character has got to come first. This is why God is so hard on his own people in the book of Amos. Amos chapter one is an indictment of all the surrounding nations of Israel. And most of them are doing things way worse than what Israel's doing, but he comes down hardest on his own people because they know him and they know better. They're supposed to reflect his character, hate evil, love good. And there is no system, economic, political, legal, social, that can fight injustice without people of tremendous godly character people who are willing to disenfranchise themselves even just a little bit for the good of their neighbor and the good of the community. So grow in character. Make it a priority in your life. How do you do that? Uh, The disciplines, fasting, silence, prayer, secrecy. I, I can't get into all of that right now, but this is what the disciplines are for. Use them at work, at home. Grow in character. Make it a priority. Second, grow in wisdom. The right motives are not enough to help the vulnerable. Not enough. Remember when the Red Cross spent $500 million in relief in Haiti and accomplished very little? It wasn't a motivation problem, I don't think. It was a wisdom problem. So if you can read just, if you want to sharpen on, if you, if you can read just one book on this, it's a book called Toxic Charity. I think I've got a slide by Robert Lupton. You can read one book on this, this is it. It's short, it's accessible, it's very powerful. I'm growing in wisdom in this area. Or just watch the video of Brian Fickert 
from CG 2015. I think Tom sent out a broadcast email this weekend with links to those videos. Watch the one by Brian. It's called What Collaboration Is Not, okay? It's just a snapshot of what we learned there. I hope you can come if you didn't make it this year. But it's one of the best talks on poverty that I've ever heard, seriously. Watch it. Grow in wisdom. Finally, use your power to help the vulnerable flourish. We all have power. We all have influence. To be an image bearer, to be made in God's image, is to have power and to have influence. It doesn't matter how old you are, how much you make, where you fit on the org chart, you're retired, you're full-time, you're part-time, you're a stay-at-home parent, it doesn't matter. You have power. And your power can either hurt or help the vulnerable. So my question is, who is flourishing in your life because of your power? Is anyone besides your family flourishing because of your influence and power? Okay, for some of you, that is as simple as loving a friend who has no friends. Seriously. Loving a child in your school who, who you know comes from a rough home. You know, you know who they are. For some, it's joining a neighborhood association and advocating for those who have no voice. There are vulnerable people in your neighborhood. I don't care where you live. And for others, that means running your business with an eye toward the vulnerable. How are you training those who need job training? How are you recruiting talent from under-resourced parts of our city? How might you bridge the divide between the public and the private and serving the common good and the vulnerable together? And for still others, how are you using the time God's given you to contribute? If you're retired, where is God calling you to invest now? I know your family is a high priority. It should be. That's good. But what about the vulnerable? You have incredible skills and expertise to share wisely. Who is flourishing because you are retired? Now, I wish I could tell each one of you, here's what you need to do next. I can't. We've got to do some self-assessment here. We've got, to, we've got to think and pray about this together. The church is here to deploy you and support you. But we've all got to figure out what this looks like in our lives. Okay, now, you can tell we're almost done because we all feel guilty and overwhelmed. And that's usually <laughs> when you know the sermon's almost over, right? Okay, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, guilt doesn't work. It doesn't work. I've tried. We can all leave here and feel bad, and in an, in an hour or in a day or in a week or in a month, we will, we'll figure it out and we'll be okay. Guilt doesn't work. That's why God doesn't deal in guilt. He deals in grace. Only grace can motivate us to be people of justice. I'm convinced of that. So here's our next point, our last point. You've got to see the vulnerable, grieve with them, stand with them, but you've got to see and remember your own vulnerability because only people who remember how vulnerable they really are are helpful to people who are vulnerable now. It's true. It's implied throughout Amos. Okay, he uses a, a motif. It's called the Exodus motif. He basically says to God's people, if you don't get this, if you keep oppressing the poor, God's going to send you back to Egypt. In this case, Babylon, same thing. And essentially, Amos is saying, don't you remember who you are? Don't you remember that God saved you when you were your most vulnerable? He owed you nothing. But he stepped in and he, he rescued you from under the hand of slavery in Egypt. To turn around and oppress your neighbors is not just a lack of grace to them, it's a rejection of grace in your own life. You see, you've got to remember that you were vulnerable. 
There's a reason that almost every metaphor in the Bible for God's people are built around being socially or economically vulnerable. You were a prisoner until Christ freed you. You were indebted. You were under astronomical, spiritual, moral debt until God paid for it in Christ. You were in a broken spiritual neighborhood until God entered it. You were an orphan until God adopted you. You were a widow until God married you. You were an immigrant until God welcomed you. Do you see that? There's a reason the Bible is full of metaphors for the vulnerable because it's a reminder that there is no one more vulnerable than you and me. And we of all people should know that. So why do we do this? Why do we care about the vulnerable? It cannot be because of guilt. The vulnerable are sick of people trying to appease their own guilt and justify their own existence. The world doesn't need more guilty people. It's got plenty of guilty people. It needs more loving people. Okay, people who live out of an overflow into thanksgiving for what God has done in their lives. That's what the church can be. That's what we're called to be. It's what we're supposed to be. We are a church of neighborly love, not neighborly guilt. Neighborly love. Nothing unites like a victory. You saw our whole city come out, almost a million strong, and celebrate a victory, a victory on our behalf, notice. As you replay that moment, as I know many of you will and have in your mind this week, this month, Think about this. There's a day coming when our city will rejoice again because of a different victory in our behalf. The vulnerable with the powerful, the rich and the poor, the lion and the lamb, every tongue, tribe, and nation because Christ is victorious. And our city won't be divided anymore. And we will truly love our neighbor as ourselves. So can we live now as God's people like that day is actually coming? I pray that we can. Jesus taught us how to pray for that day. We call it the Lord's Prayer. So if you would, pray it with me. I think it's going to be on the screens here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.